Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 102 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and joined here Tuesday and every Friday by my good friend, Daniel Foch. What's going on, Dan? Not much. Uh, we got an action-packed episode today. Um, we're going to be talking about inflation. You might have heard of this. and uh, mm, Never have. Yeah. I'm looking forward to learning yeah. more Somebody about it. Somebody who knows a thing or two about that, the Bank of Canada, and their, ah. this ominously titled page that they publish on their website every quarter. We haven't actually covered this one, um, but it talks a lot about real estate and mortgages. It's called Indicators of Financial Vulnerabilities, uh, which is... Hmm. Yeah, it's basically metrics that they use to track the evolution of two vulnerabilities in Canadian economy, the elevated level of household indebtedness and high house prices, both of which are applicable to this show. We're also going to be talking about the Bank of Canada's evil arch nemesis, inflation. Inflation is at its lowest since 2021 based off of recent CPA, CPI data, sorry. But mortgages costs are rising almost 30% annually. And without mortgages, CPI would have actually been 2.5%. What does that mean? We're going to get into the whole thing because it's confusing. One's causing the other, but the other's causing one. And I like, what's going on here, Dan? It's like a negative feedback. Yeah, loop. it's inflationception or whatever. I think we, there's a Nick Hill original in there somewhere. I also, Leo's, Leo's agreed yeah. to, to come on and, and film it again. Yeah, I, I like, uh, <laughs> I like how you made it sound like a Marvel movie as well. I think Tiff would make for a great uh, superhero. Maybe a super villain this year, but then again, you know, there has been a comeback and you can start fighting for the good maybe maybe next year. Yeah, time will tell. I'm still hoping to be able to release some Merry Tiffmas sweaters on realestatemerch.ca for the Christmas season. Well, I mean, those are those are coming either way, you know, sad or ironic. Uh, if he gives us a Christmas present, nice plug. And by the way, you know, go buy yourself a pillow or a t-shirt or a hat at realestatemerch.ca. Yeah, I guess I should plug realestatemeetups.ca since we're in the business of buying incredibly <laughs> obvious domains to go with our incredibly obviously titled real estate podcast. Uh, the next meetup is in Kitchener Waterloo on July 17th. We'd love to see all of you there. And starting in uh, September, we are hoping to start rolling out meetups, quarterly panels, and monthly kind of social, like just casual drop-ins at... Um, local restaurants, bars, coffee shops, whatever, um, in all cities across Canada. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Very exciting. And uh, maybe on that note, we should also bring back the Q&A section of this show. We haven't done that in a while. Uh, since Dan, I know you're apparently training an AI to answer real estate questions now. What the heck? Yeah, man? super random, but very cool opportunity. I can't say much about it yet, but I've basically been tasked alongside a, a really cool team of people from the industry to answer questions about real estate to help train a GPT-driven AI to help people with real estate. There you have it, folks. Real estate has entered the Black Mirror episodes. Uh, so, Dan, you're basically going to use our listeners to generate audience questions for this thing. I mean, not in a mean way. I'm going to perhaps leverage the fact that we have an audience full of smart people to get them to help me gather questions for the AI. We're all on the same team here. Also, they get answers to the questions. So I feel like it's a reasonably fair exchange. Hmm, leverage. I love it. Okay, so first question. Uh, hey, Dan, you recently tweeted out there that you're seeing seven 
plus percent cap rates within 1.5 hours of the GTA again. I was going to do an AI voice for that, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> like. You got to practice that. Um, where are you seeing those deals, Daniel? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, they, you know, there's a, a bit of a disclaimer. Like, they would probably be your five out of 10 product, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. so you're, you know, you're going to have their ad value for sure. You're like, you're going to have to do some work probably just to keep the existing tenants happy, um, but mostly rural areas. Um, Lindsay, some parts of Simcoe, Dufferin. I saw a deal in Lindsay, actually, maybe like a five out of 10, I would give it in quality. And it traded under 130,000 a door, which was wild from my perspective. Did have a leak, a big leak though. So there's probably immediate CapEx. Um, okay. Interesting. Well, first I'd like to thank you and thank Nick for all your efforts you put into the podcast. The information you share is valuable for us real estate investors. And I could not thank you enough. The question I have for you today in which interest rate terms are the best considering everything that I have going on right now. So what they were offered was a variable 6.65, uh, one year fix. Oh, was that, a, that was a question. That was an audience question. Yeah. You were reading it. It was perfect. Um, when, <laughs> I, I read it. I read it. I don't know if you were myself. thanking yourself. Yeah. Uh, the bit of fixed 6.24. <laughs> okay. So variable 6.65% fixed one year. 6.24% fixed two year, 6.14% or fixed three year, 5.56%. And then it goes on to say, I know, uh, I know, and you also talked about it on the podcast, rates should still increase at least once or twice, if not more. So taking one year is not an option. So I do hesitate between the two year and the three year variable could be an option, but I'm afraid rates won't come down soon, at least not in the next year. My response to them was just, don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> asterisk, 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 not financial advice in all caps, bold, underlined, asterisk again. Uh, but Dan, what do yeah, we think, I think about like, this? You know, disclaimer, disclaimer, not financial advice. I personally, and based on my personal circumstances, uh, would have taken the three year in that instance. Um, to me, the flexibility of the variable isn't worth the extra 110 basis points. That's a big spread. And I think... The one and two are very expensive compared to the variable. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add to that. I, I just, just the fact that, like, you know, if you're gonna go fixed and you're gonna just go one or two years in in this extremely volatile economy that we've that we've seen and volatile interest rates and inflation, it just it that bet doesn't make sense to me for most people. Now, again, very subjective, right? There's in some situations it makes a lot of sense, but in this specific situation i think i'd be going with the three years well dan okay okay not financial advice so not financial advice anyways we've had the sides let's get to the main course here let's get to the media episode dan start us off with remember you said consumer price index something about that yeah so let's dive into that yeah so the cpi rose 3.4 percent year over year in may following a 4.4 percent increase in april Keep in mind, and we're going to talk a lot about this, the meaning of base year effects, disinflation, deflation, et cetera, but um, it still rose. It just rose slower than it rose last month. Um, this is the smallest increase since June of 2021. The slowdown was largely driven by lower year-over-year prices for gasoline. And this is one of the things where everyone's like, gas prices aren't going down. Like, How is inflation lower? It's like inflation literally means that things are still going up. It doesn't mean they're going down. Um, but anyway, there, so lower year over year prices for gasoline because that huge jump, the big jump happened in the May of last year. So they were down 18.3% from that. 
um, resulting from a base year effect. And that can talks a lot about this, and we're going to talk a lot about this. So excluding gasoline, CPI rose 4.4% in May, following a 4.9% increase in April. Dan, what do you know about gasoline? You drive a diesel. It's true, and diesel is finally <laughs> cheaper than gas for like the first time and, in years. And I want to publicly thank you for letting me borrow your, your diesel truck yesterday, which I almost put gas into. Yeah, you're literally like, oh, yeah, just gassing up the truck. I'm like, no, please do not put please gas. Please do not. Yeah. yeah. I was like, premium? You don't want premium? Anyways, let's get back to it. The uh, the mortgage interest cost index is up almost 30%, remained the largest contribute to year-over-year CPI increases. So what that really means is mortgage interest, the interest payments on mortgages are actually one of the largest contributors, if not the largest contributor to CPI increase. So inflation increases. So the mortgage payment, the interest on your mortgage payment is the biggest inflation creator. Now, excluding mortgage interest costs, the CPI rose 2.5% in May following a 3.7% increase in April. So, yeah. So, it's basically like almost a third of the total inflation right now comes from mortgage. If only there was a way, if only there's something they could do to fix that. 100-year amortizations. Or just you know, reduce rates, which you obviously can't do. I get no. that it's still early. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's... Um, it's funny. It's a it's a really uh, tough situation for you know, policymakers. You know that being, snake eating its own tail. Yeah, that's just literally put that on the Canadian flag right yeah. now. Yeah, something like "Don't hike on me." Or, um, <laughs> on a monthly basis, the CPI was up uh, ha- just under half a point in May, um, following um, just a under one percent gain in April. The largest contributors to the month over month increase were mortgage interest costs and travel services, which includes accommodations, tours, um, et cetera. And on a seasonally adjusted basis, it, it barely rose uh, month over month, which is good. That means that we're not, we're not um, on that rocket trajectory, escape velocity or whatever they're calling it. <laughs> so obviously a lot of the economy uh, is dependent on energy prices. They have a very compounding effect. So let's look at year over year declines in energy prices that is driven by that base year effect that Dan mentioned. Energy prices fell by 12.4% in May compared with the same month a year earlier when supply uncertainty surrounding the Russian invasion of Ukraine led to energy prices rising substantially. I'm sure we can all remember that. Well, this mainly affected the year-over-year price changes for gasoline and fuel oil and other fuels. A decrease in the price of natural gas down by 3.5% also contributed to the energy price deceleration. This was the first year-over-year decline in natural gas prices since August of 2020, and it was due in part to lower commodity rates. So base year effect is an important piece of the puzzle here. It's helpful in making inflation seem low right now because this time last year was when like everything really just exploded in cost. Um, but it'll be unhelpful in the future because we're not seeing huge cost increases now. And so um, it'll make inflation harder to get down to that kind of 2% range. Also, while we're at it with definitions, Mm. I think we should also do deflation versus disinflation later because I think there's a lot of these people I was mentioning before, oh, gas prices aren't going down at all. Or have you seen food prices? They're not coming down. How can we have lower inflation than last year? And that's the point is that you, you, the, the things coming down is 
disinflation or sorry is is deflation what we're seeing is a reduction in inflation which is called disinflation but anyway we'll get to that yeah, and but let's talk a bit a uh, bit more about those. One thing quickly before we move on f- from inflation, maybe we can use the house prices as an example after we use StatsCan's example. So let's jump into base year effects and the headline consumer price index. The CPI is a standard measure of the price of a representative basket of goods and services. The headline's consumer inflation is a measured as a percentage between the CPI in the current month, so let's say May of 2023, and the CPI in a base month or the same calendar month from the previous year. So that would be May of 2022. A base year effect refers to the impact that price movements from 12 months earlier have on the current month's headline consumer inflation. When a large one-month upward price change in those base months stop influencing or falls out of the 12-month price movement, this has a downward effect on headline CPI in the current month. Conversely, when a large one-month downward price changes in the base month falls out, this creates upward pressure on the current month 12-month figure. So in the first half of 2022, the global economy was affected by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Canadian consumers experienced a significant increase in prices from January to June 2022. Headline consumer inflation increased from 5.1% in January to 8.1% in June 2022. The broad increase in prices from the earlier months of 2022 from energy, goods, wheat-based food products, etc. had a downward impact on the year-over-year rate of consumer inflation in May 2023. This is because the higher prices from May 2022 were used as the basis for the year-over-year comparison. So you had a bigger number that you were comparing to. Price increases observed in the first half of 2022 will continue to fall out of the 12-month price movement. So we'll continue to see this base year effect actually benefit by seeing inflation move down. While inflation has slowed in recent months, prices remain elevated. So inflation is slowing. It's disinflating, but it's not deflating. It's not going down. Prices remain elevated. Users should consider... I like how they call it users. Like, we're just... <laughs> like, this users. is a game? Yeah, like, actually. Like, oh, users of our product. Users our of our economy. Product here. Yeah. Uh, they should consider the impact of base year effects when interpreting the 12-month price in uh, movement. Anyway, and then um, I think the, you know, the, the big headline that we're seeing in the news is that CPI is at its lowest since 2021, but mortgage costs was 30%, you were saying, annually. Um, for the third, uh, I guess the the largest increase on record in the third consecutive month. Which is which is just wild. Now, Dan, you, as you do, posted something about uh, CPI on Twitter, and your thread had like 100 replies on it, and we had a lot of fun reading some replies and some comments from another uh, article. Uh, I think that was the last episode. Yeah. So, why don't we read a few of these and kind of show the spectrum of how people feel about this and maybe how some people are interpreting it and how some people are understanding it. And I'm sure there's a, I'm sure we've got a full array of, uh, of responses here. So start us off. Yeah. So the first one says, who are, who are we fooling? They changed the formula again. They're cooking the CPI. Things will stay more expensive, but news say it is not. Our buying power will continue dropping, but the news say it is not. So, and then they posted a screenshot of this Reuters article. Um, Reuters, I guess is how you say it properly. Um, Canada retools inflation baskets, more focus on food and gas prices, um, by, David Lundgren, June 20th. Um, 
so a couple of days before the, the CPI print came out. They do this every year, by the way. But anyway, so um, Canada's National Statistics Agency, StatCan, on Tuesday revealed new weights for the ba- basket of goods and services in the CPI, giving more prominence to food and gasoline. The reweighting, which Statistics Canada carries out every year, has historically had only a marginal impact on the headline number. The new basket weights will be applied to May's inflation data, which came out on the 27th. You know, I I got to hand them. I do love how they describe like a basket of goods and services. I'm such a, a visual learner and a visual guy. I'm, I'm literally sitting here picturing like a basket of with like, you know, gasoline and bread and gasoline, eggs. Gasoline, a couple apples floating in the gas. Uh, yeah. there. <laughs> well, maybe not that, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get to another comment here. Uh, mortgage interest is a large contributor to inflation. So in this particular example, one could argue that Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada are in complete control of whether or not they choose to let it stay at such a large component of inflation. Wow. Sounds a little accusatory there. Some some funny business, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we suggested it earlier in this episode as well, but you like... There's limited scope of what they can do with that. They, they take it down too early with the objective of trying to strip it out of inflation and we get back to this big spike. And I think it's, it's a precarious position to be in. Very um, much so, yeah. I think we still need to see, I think we need, still need to see more organic inflation, you know, like the things that, that they don't have control over before they start playing with the stuff that they do have control over from my perspective. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, sorry, I'm just getting distracted because I'm reading this, this last comment here, which, uh, which, which is, which is kind of funny. Um, cause someone responded to your CPI tweet, uh, saying two things to watch out for your base year effect and energy prices batch, the energy prices. Uh, these two things can come and be a wrecking ball in, 2023 or is that two what is that two h 2023 two h second half second of half of 2023 thanks thanks there you go um dan let let's let's unpack this one what do you think about that okay so i will explain the concept of a base year effect here maybe using house prices as an example this time so imagine sounds you're re- sounds relevant yeah, yeah i mean well you might as well like so imagine you're interested in tracking the changes of house prices over time. To do that, you need a starting point, a reference point to compare those prices to. That starting point is called your base year. So let's say your base year is 2020. You now want to compare house prices in different years to the prices in 2020. In 2020, the average house price was $300,000. So now let's fast forward to present day, 2023, and you find out the average house price has increased to 350000 when you, I wish. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a couple markets in Canada where this would yeah, exist. Yeah, that's true. When you compare the house prices to 2023 to the base year, you see that the house prices have increased by 50,000. So 350 minus 300,000. This 50,000 increase is the absolute change in house prices from the base year. However, it's also important to consider the percentage change, which tells you the relative increase or decrease. To calculate the percentage change, you divide the absolute change, so that $50,000 by the base year price and then multiply it by 100. In this case, the absolute change is 50,000 and the base year is 300,000. So the percentage change is 50,000 divided by 300,000 times 100, 16.67%. Okay, yeah, that's that's actually a really great example. Um, but now 
here comes the base year effect. Yeah, so like as time like, goes, you're like a dad, like with like a like a big, uh, I don't know, you know what I mean, like the, the like the special move in like a basketball game when he's playing with his kids. Here comes the base year effect. Anyway, <laughs> uh, um, okay, so on Dan's example, let's look at uh, as time progresses, new prices replace those old prices in the calculation. So. If we have a different base year, the comparison results change. Let's say you decide to change the base year from 2020 to 2022. Now, in 2022, the average house price was $320,000. So if you can compare the average 2023 house prices to your new base year, you'll find the absolute change of $30,000. That being the $350,000 minus the $320,000. The percentage change will be 30,000 divided by 320,000 times 100, equaling a 9.38% change. So comparing the two percentage, percentage changes, you'll notice that using the different base year resulted in a smaller percentage change. That's 9.38 versus 16.67, almost half even though the absolute change in house prices remain the same. This is the base year effect. There you go, big dad moment. And show it shows that the choice of the base year can be very influential in the interpretation of percentage changes over time. It's important to be aware of this effect when analyzing the data that involves comparisons to a reference point. Yeah, I mean, I think gas prices is even a decent example, like an easy to use example, right? It's like, okay, gas prices. Everyone were, loves, yeah. Well, but it's like, okay, like it's just the, the number is so easy because it's like a dollar, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, oh, gas prices were $1 and now they're $1.50 and that's 50% of $1. But if you're comparing it to $1.25, then it's, you know, a smaller, uh, smaller percent, total percentage of the total amount. So, um, exactly. yeah, the other piece that they mention, um, is the mortgage cost increases at the fastest pace on record for the third consecutive month. We, we touched on this, but, uh, 30% on a year over year basis, which is just crazy that mortgages went up that much, but, um, following a 28.5% increase in April. So even bigger when you're looking at May to May. And this is actually a good example. You can, you can jump in on this, but, um, it was the largest increase on record as Canadians continue to renew and initiate mortgages at higher interest costs. So more and more people having to absorb these rates. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's unpack that example of the base year effect. So because the biggest jumps in mortgage rates, like the 100 BIP hikes that we saw, which was the bank's biggest interest rate hike, took place in July of last year. And there was a 50 BIP increase in June as well. So we've seen 375 BIPs since last May. So if you're comparing this May to last May, then it's going to look really bad, right? That's an example of how the base year can make things look even more negative. It's almost like selective, you know, you can, you can really, you know, selective hearing and you're in an argument or something like that. It's almost like you can choose these things to make it look better or worse. Yeah. And, and then later in the year, and I had made this prediction, you know, earlier, I, I said, you know, the base year, I thought the base year effect was going to get us down to the 3% range anyway. Like there's actually a TikTok of me 
predicting that this would happen. I'm not saying that's a toot my own horn, but it's literally just math, right? Um, and the same thing will happen with mortgage costs by December. So when you're comparing December of this year later, unless we see a bunch more hikes, but if you're comparing December of this year to December of last year, after all of the hikes were already done pretty much, then the increase won't look as bad. This is an example of how the base year effect later can make things look positive once the big changes have already passed in the data. So as a percentage, um, and, and once we've passed all those major cost increases, inflation will kind of just come down as a result of the base year effect, which is happening. We saw it, we just saw happen in fuel. Yeah, exactly, Dan. Now we had talked about uh, deflation versus disinflation. Let's maybe let's maybe have a bit of a chat about that. Maybe using a volatile cost that affects our listeners, like for instance, construction costs, as an example. Yeah, it's a great idea, and and you know the house prices similarly, like you know that would apply to a couple of um, cities in kind of like your rural markets as well. The example that we use, um, and so deflation refers to, and this is kind of just going back to those people who are like, oh, gas prices aren't coming down, groceries are so expensive. We just want to explain the difference between deflation and disinflation. So deflation refers to a sustained decrease in the general level of, of prices for goods and services. In simple terms, it means that prices are going down over time. When there's deflation, the purchasing power of money increases because you can buy more stuff with the same amount of money. Or the price of goods goes down. Right. And that, you know, that could be an oversimplification, but if you really wanted to make it easy, you could say deflation is when costs go down. Disinflation is when costs stop going up and going down is not the same as not going up. Really? Right. <laughs> now, now let's apply this concept to the construction costs, right? Now imagine you're tracking the costs of building materials, labor, and other expenses related to constructing homes, or maybe, you know, you want to build out that ADU or that DADU. Maybe you're trying your hand at development. So construction costs are pretty important to you. Well, if construction costs are experiencing deflation, it means that the overall price of these construction related items are constantly going down. So for example, let's say in 2020, the cost of building materials for a house was $100,000. And then in 2021, due to deflation, the cost actually decreased. Wouldn't that be nice? The cost actually decreased to 90,000. And in 2022, it further decreased to $80,000. Yeah, and, and this is actually like lumber for that in that example would actually kind of follow that trajectory. Um, lumber went up and then it came back down. So in this case, you can see the construction costs are experiencing deflation because the prices are decreasing over time. It means that builders and homeowners can save money because they need to spend less on construction related expenses. You know, and I, this is actually something I expect to start seeing happening as, you know, we just saw, we talked about in the last episode, 30,000 units in the pipeline in Toronto last year, 10,000 in the pipeline this year. A lot of that labor is going to go missing. A lot of those jobs are going to go missing. And once though, that means that, you know, they aren't the, uh, the hottest kid on the block anymore and they can't just bid whatever they want on jobs. Now all of a sudden the trades actually have to start reducing prices and bidding on jobs rather than, you know, um, have, having waiting lists or whatever. So exactly, exactly. Okay. So that's, that's deflation. Now, on the other hand, let's talk disinflation. Disinflation is a decrease in the rate of inflation. Inflation refers to the general increases in price over time, right? Like real estate, it always goes up. 
It's a joke. Um, whereas disinflation means that the rate at which prices are, are increasing is actually slowing down. So let's apply this concept to construction costs as well. Suppose construction costs were rising rapidly in previous years. So 2020, building materials went up 10% and they went up to 110,000. Then in 2021, they increased 8% compared to the previous year, reaching 118,800. However, in 2022, there was disinflation in construction costs. While the prices still increased, the rate of increased slowed down compared to previous years. So let's say the cost increased by only 2%, reaching 121000 So in this case, even though construction costs are still rising, the rate of increase is lower in 2022 compared to the previous years. It represents disinflation in construction costs because the rate of inflation is decreasing. So to summarize this in, in layman's terms here, which I that's the language I speak, Deflation means the general level of prices is consistently going down over time. Disinflation means the rate of inflation is decreasing, even if prices are still increasing. So I hope that explanation helps to clarify the difference between deflation and disinflation using, you know, construction costs. Very relevant example. Okay. Now let's pivot to the grand finale for this episode, and we got a lot. Oh. Of, we got a lot of ground to cover on this one, but so we might. This might end up being a little long, but we have the Bank of Canada's most ominously titled page on their website: "Indicators of Financial Vulnerabilities." Da, da, da. The quarterly data from the indicators we use to track the evolution of two vulnerabilities in the Canadian economy: the elevated levels of household indebtedness and high house prices. So the Bank of Canada promotes the country's economic and financial welfare by fostering a stable and efficient financial system. As part of that commitment, they monitor areas where things could go wrong. So these are conditions that may interact with changes in the economy. These are things that they're paying attention to to make sure that they don't break the economy with their one policy tool, which is the interest rates. The interaction between vulnerabilities and shocks can bring about risks that could impair the financial system and harm the economy, i.e. recession, which is what they, I think, say that they're trying to avoid, but might actually just end up becoming a necessary evil. Yeah, so the bank again assembles these comprehensive set of indicators to track the evolution of those vulnerabilities. And the indicators are updated on a quarterly basis near the beginning of each of the following months. So for instance, like March shows the data from the fourth quarter of the previous year. June shows first quarter data, September showing the second quarter's data, and December showing third quarter data. So again, what do we call that? Lagging indicators, right? We're finding out what's actually happening a few months after it has. So let's talk about indicators related to the elevated level of household indebtedness. This vulnerability relates to households' ability to continue servicing their debt if their incomes decline or interest rates rise without having to significantly reduce their consumption. So if costs go up, um, you know, are you able to keep spending, right? Or do you have to drastically decrease? So typically, if disposable incomes decline, households that allocate a large share of their income to debt payments would need to cut back on consumption. 
spending by, you know, more than they would if that was a smaller portion. Yeah. So we, and we talked about that a couple, on the la- a couple of the last episodes. If you start seeing that at scale across the economy, people spending more on their mortgage and less on consumption, then that's how a recession happens. Um, exactly. Right. You cancel the sea dues or, or the, the trip to Disneyland yeah. and you, you, you make the extra mortgage payment. Um, and so they look at characteristics of mortgage originations as well. So this is, you know, what are all of the new mortgages that are happening right now? So they look at, Mortgage insurance status, so how much mortgages are being insured, um, what percentage are, are insured mortgages, the type uh, of interest rate, so variable versus fixed. Um, and then they also look at the term, so how long is the person holding that for? And we know that, you know, we mentioned that they ha- they also posted a chart of how more and more people were taking three-year fixed, right, to answer that question at the beginning of the episode, because consumers are basically acting as though they think rates will be down by then and they'll renew cheaper. Amortization period. So are people stretching out that amortization because they're having a hard time affording? And the mortgage interest rate. What rate are people paying? And basically, they show a chart under this that's number of mortgages originated um, for all insurance types. And it's basically just falling off of a cliff. And this isn't really that scary. It's just showing that the interest rates is, has a negative impact on mortgage demand. People are less likely to want to borrow money because it's very expensive to do that right now. So, and this, we've seen this in the real estate market, less and less people are buying, um, transaction volumes are significantly lower than they were last year. Speak for yourself. I'm not seeing it. I'm busy as ever. Yeah. So next is, uh, the loan to income (laughs) ratio, right? Yeah. So let's talk about the LTI, uh, which is loan loan to income ratio, which is a measure of initial affordability. So it's calculated when a new mortgage is issued and compares the size of the mortgage to the gross income stated by the home buyer when they qualified for that mortgage. Now, research by the Bank of Canada staff found that all else be equal home buyers with higher LTI ratios are more vulnerable to financial stress. This means that the highly indebted home buyers are more likely to fall behind on debt payments if they experience a negative income shock or a rise in interest rates. The bank uses these share of mortgages with an LTI ratio greater than 450% to identify the most vulnerable households. Yeah, and then they go on to show a chart, same thing, share of new mortgages with an LTI above 450 falls off a cliff as well. So we're actually seeing less and less risky mortgages as a percentage of the total amount um, being developed. So it would have peaked at 26% and it looks like kind of early 20, early 2022. And so that would have been when everybody was getting those um, buying really expensive houses and doing it with those cheap variable rates. And then, you know, we haven't seen, basically it's been decreasing ever since then. And so that's good. The market is risk correcting itself. There's obviously risk for that entire period when it was climbing from basically 2022 until that peak. Those are all the ones where there's, I guess it peaked at 26%. Um, Anyway, I mean, it's good to see the market correcting. It's showing that, that, that policy is working to eliminate that risk. The next piece is loan-to-value ratio, LTV. We talk about this a lot on the show. Um, loan-to-value ratio is a measure of the initial equity stake that a homeowner has in their house. So how much equity do they have? How much of that house do they actually own? It's calculated by the size of the mortgage to the market value of the property. So you take the mortgage amount, you divide it, divide it by what was paid for the house or the value of the property. The smaller the down payment made by the buyer, 
relative to the purchase price, the higher the LTV ratio. Home buyers can borrow up to 95% of the value of their home, excluding the mortgage insurance premium, which gets added after. Um, however, borrowers with a loan to value more than 80% have to get CMHC insurance or some other type of insurance. Researcher by the bank's staff found that all else being equal, home buyers with higher LTV ratios are more vulnerable to financial stress. In other words, they're more likely to fall behind on debt payments in the event of a negative income shock or a rise in mortgage interest rates. I'll also mention this one a little bit. They're also, if you buy with a 95% loan to value mortgage, you are in a negative equity position as soon as you take possession of the house. You're in the bank's house. And I don't have any issues with this. I think it's a necessary thing for a lot of people to do, but it's just worth noting that because if the the market goes down, you have to literally lose money. You owe, you will owe money. It'll cost you money to sell that house. You'd be in a negative, you're in a negative equity position because your, your insurance premium is 4% on a 95% loan to value house. That, that CMHC insurance premium, which they say gets added to the back of the property. So now all of a sudden you're at 1% equity. And then you account for the fact that it's going to cost you typically in most markets, a realtor, you know, three to 5%, let's say, um, coast to coast. Um, to sell that. So now you're at negative 2% on a bit of best case scenario, negative 5% in a worst case scenario. And this is very rough math. It's not proper math. Um, it's a realtor math, but, um, <laughs> my favorite. And then, and that's before, you know, you consider land transfer tax on the way in, which is a sunk cost, right? Um, lawyer fees, other switching costs. So just to be aware that literally as soon if you buy a 95% loan to value house, you're buying it with negative equity position. So, it won't be very... If it, Liquidity is going to cost you. You have to lose money to sell that house. Anyway, on the bright side, the chart that they show after showing this loan to value is share of all new mortgages by loan to value ratio. We're seeing an increase in 65% or less, which is your high equity purchasers, and a decrease in your 85 or 80 and below... 80 and above. So your higher leverage buyers. So less risky so buyers entering. Short. Yeah. More people are putting more money down to buy to buy these houses. Yeah, not more people, but a greater percentage of people. Yeah, right. Sorry, it's all good. my my realtor yeah. math. Um, and you know, just just before we move on here, Dan, it's it's funny. You know, going back to the loan to income and the loan to value ratio, the you know the bank stating that uh, people with higher ratios are more vulnerable. Well, yeah, I mean pretty obvious. Well, anyways, it's, yeah, it's kind of a selection bias. I mean, it shouldn't be that obvious because like. But I guess it is, but like they, you know, they, they're, they, if they couldn't save up more than 5%, then yeah, they're more likely to have like the less financial acumen or not be in the market as long or whatever it is. And so, yeah, but it's, it's not only that they have a higher likelihood of financial stress, the consequences of them getting financial stress from my perspective is what's more scary because they're all already in negative equity positions. It's a good. It's good that it's less than ninety five percent, or sorry, less than five percent of the total market um, is ninety five percent and above. Yeah, no, agreed. This is actually the probably one of the better looking charts on this uh, on this report. Let's finish things up strong here with another one of our favorite acronyms: DSR, a very close relative of DSCR, the Mortgage Debt Service Ratio. That measures the share of income a home buyer dedicates to their mortgage debt payments. All else being equal, a household that spends a large portion of its income on mortgage payments may be more vulnerable to financial stress. It may be more likely to fall behind on debt payments if a negative income shock or a rise in mortgage rates were to occur. 
The bank uses the share of new mortgages with a DSR greater than 25% to identify the most vulnerable households. Yeah, and this is the chart that scares me the most. The share of new mortgages with a DSR greater than 25%, It basically just a hockey stick chart. So there is a big increase in the people that they are calling the risk or the more vulnerable households. So, and that, that increased from basically in Q1 of 2024, um, it would have been about 12% of total. And that increased to 29.13% of all uh, mortgages have a DSR greater than 25%. So these are basically people who are just spending too much money. So too many people are spending too much money on mortgages right now. <laughs> and that's something that they don't like. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, some, some interesting stuff from the, uh, the bank of Canada, you know, it, it's funny. Most of these charts are either like jumping off a cliff or like hockey stick up in the wrong direction. Kind of, I thing. mean, this is what happens when you get very reactionary whiplash policy and you have like, you know, you had things too good and they ran up like crazy and then now they have to make them very bad and they run down like crazy and you get this crazy volatility happening in the market. Like we just saw biggest price drop in Canadian history. Then we just saw right after that, the strongest spring market in Canadian history. And now we're probably going to see another bit of a volatility probably on the downside from my perspective. So, I mean, it's funny, like, I don't know where the only go up, goes up stuff comes from. I must be looking at the wrong chart. I think it only goes up and down and up and down and up and down. So <laughs> that's seriously, it's just crazy. It's such a roller coaster. It's fun. It keeps us busy. Lots to talk about here. Um, make sure you check out, uh, to talk about, yeah. make sure you check out realestatemerch.ca. Go buy a, li- uh, live, laugh, leverage pillow and, uh, realestatemeetups.ca. <laughs> and we'd love to see you at, uh, one of our meetups either this summer or in September. Yeah. And uh, one last thing we've already had about, a, we just started to mention this. We've already had about a dozen people reach out and we will be getting back to you. This is, uh, we're just putting some finishing touches. But if you are interested in the first version of our course and, and joining up and being one of the early adopters, we would love to have you. Limited spots, reach out. Can't wait to hear from you guys. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.